see crosses everywhere, on buildings, upon necklaces, and even in tattoos. But in the first century, the cross was a symbol of power, violence, and death. Decent people never spoke of the cross. This most gruesome death instrument had one purpose, terrifying and torturing Rome's adversaries. For its victims, the cross meant a slow and agonizing death. No one ever came back from the cross. So, what in the world compelled early Christians to embrace it as the most treasured symbol of love? The Bible itself clearly elevates the cross as its most central and core truth, the very power of God, and the only message Christians offer. But why? What is the point of the cross? Ooh, who is excited to start a brand new series on the cross? Good, good, good. You are not as hyped as the 930, uh, but we'll work on that. Um, I was probably, I don't know, eight or nine years old, and my parents took us on a trip to Mexico. Anybody been to Mexico? All right, good, good. I was a tourist, and as typical tourists do, we were walking around to the different like shops that the merchants set up for all of the American tourists. And you're looking at, as a little kid, you're like looking at all the like wooden trinkets, you know what I'm talking about? And so they have like weird things like the little turtle bobblehead thing. Like I've never seen that anywhere else, like just there. And I'm like, this is an awesome toy. And so you're like looking at this toys, and I'm drawn in as an eight-year-old. And I will never forget like one of the toys that I found was this like beam and stretched across this beam is like this dead dying guy with a crown of thorns on his head, bloody, like nails in the hands. And I'm going, like, what is this thing? And as an eight-year-old, that is absolutely terrifying. (laughs) Like we're just like, like harming our children, like looking at this. And so this was a crucifix of Jesus. And as an eight-year-old, like, I don't have the, like, theological categories for what this is. Like, even then, and I remember looking at this and being so, like, stricken with, like, horror. Like, it just scared me for Jesus going forward after that point. I was like, I don't know if I want to have anything to do with this. What is this cross about? Mahatma Gandhi says this concerning Jesus' gospel. His death on the cross was a great example to the world. But that there is anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart could not accept. This world looks at the cross and says there is no miraculous meaning to it. What is the point of that cross? It's essentially meaningless. It's yet another failed, would-be, ancient Jewish, messianic figure being crucified publicly. There is no meaning to it. This most grotesque symbol in history, does it have any meaning? The biblical authors seem to say yes. As a matter of fact, the biblical authors, on the other hand, put forward the cross as their central and only message. This is perhaps the good news of Christianity is the cross of Jesus. In fact, Paul the apostle himself to the Corinthian church says essentially, I sought to preach nothing among you except for Christ and him what? Crucified. That this cross is our message. This is it. And so we are going through this series, what is the point of the cross? And some of you say, um, man, this is like, 
a simple message, right? Because rightfully so, the gospel is simple. Even a child can understand it, that Jesus died for me, that that's our understanding. But while the cross is a simple thing, it is also a complex thing that puts forward various themes, various truths that if you grasp them will utterly transform, disrupt, disturb, and lead you to deep and profound healing, which is why we're going to spend several weeks on the cross, looking at varying themes or varying stories, if you will, of the cross that impact our lives powerfully. And so today's idea is what we call Christus Victor. This is perhaps um, in today's evangelical American Christianity, the least looked at dimension of the cross, Uh, but it does not make it thus less powerful. In fact, it packs an enormous amount of power. And as we unpack this, I think you're going to see. um, But how many of you guys actually saw the movie Men in Black? You guys remember that movie? Yes, Men in Black, there's three of you. Cool. How many of you guys like watched it on VHS though? All right, 20-year-olds, put your hands down, bro. Put your hands down. If you didn't grow up watching Men in Black on VHS, your life is obviously garbage. And so Men in Black was an awesome movie. And um, you guys remember the part where Will Smith, uh, is, he's basically taken, you know, uh, he's now becoming an agent for, like, among the Men in Black. And they're commissioning him as this agent. And so they say, we got to get him a weapon. And so they open that, like, cabinet or whatever, and they start pulling out all of these enormous, like, bazookas and, like, awesome weapons and stuff. And then he pulls out, like, this little, like, thing they call, like, the noisy cricket, but it's this big. And he's like, what are you giving me this for, this noisy cricket? I'm going to break this midget cricket or whatever. And he's all disappointed. And then later in the film, like you see him like out of desperation, he pulls it out and fires it and literally falls back to the ground because of the enormous power. That is what Christus Victor is, all right? Because we unpack all of these weapons, all of these powerful realities of the cross, and we now look at Christus Victor, this lesser known thing that actually packs an enormous power for our lives. Robert Cole from the Gospel Coalition says this about Christus Victor, which means Christ is conqueror. He says this, this view, which characterizes much of the language of the New Testament and early church fathers like Irenaeus, brings out the themes of the victory of God in Christ over the evil powers of the world, mainly Satan. By defeating the evil powers that oppose God, Jesus Christ rescued his people from Satan and established himself as the rightful king of the cosmos. This is phenomenal, good, powerful news. And so where we're going to go is Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And this is an important thing that we look at the scriptures, that we understand this, that we understand these few verses into the depth. And so would you grab a Bible? There are Bibles on the tables in between the seats if you did not bring one. In these Bibles, um, I think you will find it on page 924. And so let's explore Christus Victor beginning with verse 13. This is God's word. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed 
the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. Father God, I don't know where people are coming from today. If they are coming in here weary and embattled and struggling and addicted and broken, God, we pray that Christ would be conqueror for them by faith today. That if we're coming in here uh, on the top of the mountain spiritually, that we would exalt Jesus for that mountaintop because you are the victor, Christ. We pray that the cross would have powerful implications for our lives and that that implication would be applied today on our hearts as we study the truth of your word, most centrally on this powerful reality of your cross. God, we subject ourselves to the truth of your word and we ask that you would bring about deeper faith and healing in our lives, families, and our legacies, and this city. And all God's people said... Amen. So here we are. We're looking at Christus Victor in Colossians chapter 2, and we need to sort of slow down on this, beginning with the, the end of that passage. And I want to point something out that you may not have caught in today's American Christianity, really even in today's American worldview, 21st century, we tend not to notice things like this or, or just blatantly don't observe them. And, and what I want you to see is that Reality, the reality we live in, is not just physical, but deeply spiritual. Reality, this reality, which you're, this air you're breathing, this room you're sitting in, you are not just in a physical reality, but we live between two worlds. Reality is not physical, but deeply spiritual as well. As, and here's why I say that. Look at uh, verse 15 there at the end. He says this, he, Jesus, or God in Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When we say ruler and authorities, when Paul writes that, do you know what he means? Because when you first read that, um, as a Westerner, as, you know, in a secular society, we're like, so he's talking about like Caesar. He's talking about Pontius Pilate. He put him to shame because he went on the cross. Is that what he's saying? Well, in one sense, you could argue that, but the problem is this is Paul we're talking about. And in the broader kind of corpus of thought of Paul, this phrase does not just mean worldly leaders. It actually means Satan and demons, okay? And so we are going to talk now about Satan and demons because I'm not convinced that everyone in here actually operates with a biblical framework, a biblical worldview here. And so we're talking about Satan. Happy Sunday. And so uh, Colossians 2.15 talks about rulers and authorities, and you think I'm making this up. Let's compare it to other writings of Paul, Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor what? Angels nor rulers. See, he's juxtaposing here spiritual beings for good under God, under his reign, serving his purpose, versus who? Rulers who are their antithesis, fallen, rebellious spiritual beings. And he says, look, these things, neither um, angels nor rulers can separate us from the love of God. Now we look at Ephesians 1, 20 through 21. Paul says this, he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. This is what Christ has accomplished. For above, far above, he says, all what? 
rule and authority. There's our word again. And power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but the age to come. He's speaking in terms of the physical reality, but also the spiritual reality. And he names these rulers and authority. And you could push back and be like, come on, man, you're pushing that too far in Paul. Ruler and authority can also be Caesar. The problem with that is context. Because in Ephesians 6, we see Paul do it again. Same exact book, he says this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, hmm? but against rulers, against the authorities. And so you're like, you're talking about earthly rulers or cosmic rulers here, Paul? He says, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. He like clarifies it for you. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I don't know how much clearer he can be. He is talking about rulers and authorities in the unseen realm. We are now talking about demons, the demonic, Satan. And like, I actually don't have to convince most of you that these realities exist. And I say that because um, more Americans believe in Satan than even believe in God. This is, a, this is from a Barna uh, survey that they did recently, um, this last year. 56% of Americans say Satan is a real spiritual being and influences people's lives, while 51% believe in a traditional biblical view of God as all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect, and just creator. What that means is you are more likely to believe in Satan and his power than believe in God. And both of these have been trending in that opposite direction, right? Uh, how do I even do that with my hands? They have been trending in that opposite direction. And, and this is why. Because we see the reality of the demonic in its effects in our everyday lives. And so I do not need to convince you of Satan and demons' existence. Instead, what I want to set out to do is set up a biblical understanding of them for you. So that we're just conjuring up uh, things that we believe about the demonic. As a matter of fact, I've told m multiple times uh, um, from this pulpit that um, at our young adults ministry, I am constantly being approached with like, can I do seances? Like, should we be participating in uh, like Native American ancient rituals of conjuring up the dead? Like, these are real questions I'm being asked. And I have noticed an increase of spirituality in Generation Z. So if you don't believe in the demonic, you're about to because it's coming. And this is the truth. We need to actually understand these things biblically. Because what happens as we talk about things like the Holy Spirit, what happens when we talk about things like the demonic, is uh, ru rulers and authorities, is what can happen in Christianity is basically people get hyper-spiritual emotionalism instead of biblically grounded truth. And so I want to approach this sort of theologically, doctrinally, and, and set up a framework here. And, and we need to do this because um, we actually need to understand our enemies. Some of you are like, why are we talking about creepy things like this? We should just talk about Jesus and the gospel. Well, yes, we should centrally talk about it, but we can't fully understand what he accomplished if we don't know our enemy. And we need to stand against his scheme. Sun Tzu, who wrote The Art of War, says, if you know the enemy and yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. Unless you think I'm just like basing this all off like warlords or whatever, we actually have biblical, um, we have biblical foundation for this. 2 Corinthians 2.11, the context is why we should forgive, and he nods to spiritual warfare saying so that we would not be outwitted by satan for we not are not ignorant of his designs other translations say schemes and so we actually have to understand the schemes of our enemies so that we are not outwitted by him and so here's our biblical framework we actually see at the beginning of the bible what 
a reality that is an overlap of heaven and earth, the immaterial and the material, where God has created the material reality, he has created Adam and Eve, and they are walking in the cool of the day with the presence of God, where the spiritual and the material are there in one place, overlapping in some sense, but then you enter this other figure, and who is it? It's the Satan, the Satan, and he is manifest in the form of a serpent, and he has come to bring one thing, lies and disorder. See, God created an ordered universe, um, and he brings about order out of chaos. That's the whole thrust of Genesis 1. But by Genesis 3, we find this other figure, the shadowy serpent, showing up, and his purpose is to invert the created order. His purpose is to move things back toward the chaos in rebellion against God, and he uses lies to do it. And we see this all over the scriptures. But then we get in Moses, the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 32, the very first instance uh, where he, Moses, actually attributes all of these gods of sex, money, and uh, power to something called demons. He says they are demon gods. And we find that there is something of a rebellion against God, this, um, these, these angel-like beings who have sort of um, rebelled and taken their aim against God. And by the book of Daniel, you actually see one of them, who, who is called the Prince of Persia, show up and sort of block uh, the angel Gabriel who is coming to answer a prayer of Daniel. And so we see there that they actually exist to oppose God's purpose. This is the demonic. And then if we were to sort of port over to Revelation chapter 12, we look at the end of the scriptures. Not only do they oppose God's purposes, but they do so not only through lies, but accusation and attack. In fact, um, three different times in that passage alone, Satan is called the accuser of the brothers. He is the accuser. And actually that word means to name. He wants to name you. He wants to identify you. He wants to say, you are your sin. And so he accuses you night and day before God. And then we actually, if we were to organize this in something of a systematic, rather than simply follow the biblical narrative, we would actually see several things, six of them. Here are the six schemes of the enemy. If you're taking notes, I would write this down so that you're not unaware. Number one, they seek to subvert and invert God's order. They seek to subvert and invert God's good order. Number two, they seek to lie and question truth. Did God really say, are you sure what your pastor is teaching is the truth? Not comparing it to the Bible, but comparing it to culture. Did God really? Should you trust God? God doesn't love you, does he? Number three, they seek to tempt and distract constantly offering opportunity to worship other things than God, to bend inward on yourself, to tempt you, to distract you, especially today. Number four, they seek to incite pride and disunity. If you recall, or if you're new to the Bible, in Genesis, we see that he tempts Eve with what? The boastful pride of life. You can be like God. See, you're not close enough to God yet. You have to snatch this for yourself. Then your eyes will be open. He, he seeks to instill pride, to incite pride in us. And the result is disunity. Adam and Eve turn against one another. And number five, we see the accuse and shame. If you, if you ever found yourself walking in a bunch of, man, I just feel shameful. I feel guilty. Well, it's because that's their design. They seek to accuse you. They seek to blame you. And this is the sick thing about our enemy. He 
first tempts and lures us to bite the hook of our flesh and says, hey, come on, this is going to be awesome. Do it. Just, you will find fulfillment here. And then once you bite, he turns around and says, do you see what you did? Do you see how guilty you are, disgusting you are? You, should, you shouldn't even be here anymore. You don't deserve life. He accuses and he shames. And the number six, he brings about death. See, everything that Satan is, everything that demons are, is they are the anti-life. They are the anti-creation. They're seeking to bring things back into chaos. And so they move everything towards shame. They move everything towards death. You guys feeling good? Good. But here's the deal. We actually have to have a category for this. Because if there is no devil, if there aren't what Paul calls rulers and authorities, then we are going to miss what is happening in real life. Because you could look at last year, and you'd be like, man, it was just a pandemic, and you know, there's just these physical realities we have to de- deal with, and there's political stuff, and so people are just fighting each other. No, there is also the demonic. And there are times when the demonic is behind the veil, influencing and seeking to attack and seeking to divide God's church, God's purposes, and God's people. In fact, if, if there is no Satan, if there are no rulers and authorities, how do you explain the concerted effort of riots and looting across our nation? Like centrally here in Portland, right? Because we're the best at it, evidently. But like all over the nation, does it seem like, man, it's just a hashtag movement, like people are just doing this? No, this is demonic. Or what about the deification of political identification? If you're not on my side, like, you're garbage. And if you, if you even hint that you're from another political party, like, we're done with you. We cancel you. It's this deification of our political uh, representatives and our political parties. And it's idolatry. It's demonic. Radical disunity everywhere, from the world to the church, everybody infighting, everybody canceling. It's, it's radical disunity because he seeks to divide. The, what about this? The deconstruction of marriage, of family, and now the deconstruction of gender. You think that this is just like, oh man, it's politics. No, this is demonic. He has always been seeking to subvert the created order. That's why he talks to Eve first and not Adam. Adam was established as head, and he comes in, and he says, man, I'm going to whisper up to Eve, because what's he doing? It's not, it's not subtle. He's flipping the whole thing on its head, and he's saying, away with God's design, forget it, it's garbage. He is an inverter. He is not creative. He's doing the opposite, and he's doing it today. His schemes are not new. We need to be aware of them. What about the epi- epidemic of abortion? What about the epidemic of depression and suicide? Right? As a pastor to people who are part of Gen Z, all the time I'm hearing about depression. All the time I'm hearing, oh, anxiety. Man, these things are not just physical. Yes, sometimes there's actual physical, chemical realities there, but there's also spiritual ones. And we need to have a category for this. Or how about this one? Just the pure existence of social media. You guys are like, don't even laugh at that because it's just true. Like if Mark Zuckerberg ain't powered by the devil then I don't know what he's empowered by. He's demonic. I'm just joking. But, but like these things, they're demonic. We actually have a ca- category for this. As a um, brand new believer, I was 16 years old. I remember the night that I got saved. And I remember going back, to, um, back home and just feeling this weird, and you could chalk it up to like 16-year-old hormones or whatever, and just feeling this weird, oppressive feeling that maybe I'm doing the wrong thing. And, and just couldn't escape it. And then for about six months, every morning when I, w- when I would wake up and get ready for school, it was like I would just be in cold sweat, stressing about, should I really become a Christian? 
And like, again, I'm coming from a totally like secular mindset, but the truth is that was demonic. I don't know what else to call it, just this opposition. And so let me ask you this question. Do you even have a category for spiritual attack? Do you even have a, maybe you're going through divisiveness in your marriage. You're saying, my husband is just a grumpy jerk. Like that's all that is. Or maybe there's actual spiritual attack because God seeks to subvert and divide what God installed. Or maybe you're dealing with anger, constant bouts of anger, or maybe it's fear. Man, I'm just, I'm just so fearful. I don't know if I'm, and it's everywhere. Constant patterns of this, slander, temptation, self-centeredness, patterns and addictions. These things sometimes are not just our flesh. We have the world, the flesh, and the enemy. But as you hear this, I also want to be careful on the other side. Like, okay, so there's powers and principalities, there's authorities, these are demons. But I want to be careful that you're not just like, well, the devil made me do it then. So you're like, I'm not just a grumpy jerk and need to like organize my schedule so I'm not like popping off in anger all the time. It's the devil that made me do it, babe. You know, just Satan is always after me and we sort of like embrace this demon under every rock, helpless victim mindset where we're like, yeah, like it's not me, it's Satan. Because the truth is we are both captives and accomplices. We are both victims, but also perpetrators. And we're building this out of the passage, Colossians 2, 13 through 14 now, uh, just those first two verses. And what does he say? And we need to kind of like zoom in on this. And you who were, what? Dead in your trespasses. That's a thing. Like our trespasses are our sins. And they cause us to be in spiritual death. And the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by what? Canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Listen, we are not just here like victims of Satan. The truth is we are his accomplices. We have participated in sin from the garden forward, and the result is we are all born under sin with a nature that bends inward on itself called our sinful nature. Read Romans 7. This is what Paul is now addressing. He's saying, look, you're not innocent. You are complicit. Um, my daughter Capri is uh, more insightful than her brothers, okay? So uh, the, two, the two brothers are um, not as relationally intuitive. Boys and girls are just different from the time they are born. You notice this, parents? They're like literally different from the womb. I was like, maybe it'll be the same. No, it's totally different. Because where the boys just like don't even know what's going on relationally until about three years old, she is like reading my mind. <laughs> and I'm like, Lindsay already does this. I don't need another one doing this. <laughs> How do you know what I'm thinking? And she just like reads your facial expressions. Girls are just more intuitive with that stuff. And um, so I would like the boys, like I could kind of get them under control. I'm like, dudes, like you can't do this. Do what I say. And they're like, yes, sir. Like they're little soldiers. But Capri, like she figured out how to upset me because I'm, I, I don't know if you know me very well, but like I'm kind of a germaphobe. Like, I'm just, like, always washing my hands. Like, I try to be subtle about it so people don't notice. I'm like, yeah, just sanitize her after I shook her hand, you know? And I'm, like, trying to be subtle. But she, like, picked up on it really quick. Um, and so I'm, I'm, like, I would always, like, when she comes in with dirty hands, I'm like, wash your hands before we eat snack, you know? And so, like, wash them up and everything. And, like, she picked up on this, and she, like, look at me before she comes inside. And I'm like, come here, we got to deal with your hands. And she's like, mouth. And I'm like, no, no, not mouth. And she's like, mouth. And I'm like, ah, like, like, don't do this. And like, how do you know? And why does it bring you so much joy to upset me, my, my loving daughter? 
Like, what is wrong? Well, here's what's wrong. It's called a sinful nature. We are complicit with Satan. That is the truth. We are, we, and here's why we know this, because again, going back to Romans 12, and even in this passage, what does he say? He's our accuser. Well, you can't accuse people who are not complicit and do not have guilt. The truth is nothing makes us more vulnerable than the reality of our own guilt. That's why he can accuse us day and night, because we actually are partakers with sin. And so we see this. Let me ask you a question, though. How do we engage in this battle? We're like, okay, so we're in the spiritual war. Like, we're complicit in it. We're on Satan's side before Christ, and it's still going on after Christ. How do we engage in this battle? I want to be very careful here because the truth is we can sort of stand up and there are actually ministries who like will teach you like, man, you got to bind the devil. And they like sort of like create these like intricate, like extra biblical systems for how you like do away with demons. And we think we're like going to gear up and fight Satan. But the truth is, according to this passage, we are not called to fight, but to stand on the finished work of Christ. Um, I used to listen to this band called Demon Hunter, right? And it's like an awesome name. Like Demon Hunter is like a heavy metal band. Ju-ju-ju, like they're Christian. And I was like, that's an awesome name for a heavy metal band, but a really bad identity as a Christian. Because <laughs> we are not fighting any demons. When we see Jesus show up on the scene, we see people who are demonized, like foaming at the mouth, helpless. They don't like cast the demon out of themselves. Jesus shows up and casts the demon out with very little effort. We are to depend on Christ. Again, we see in um, Acts 19, if you've ever studied the book of Acts, there is a story where the Jewish, um, there are these like Jewish exorcists and they show up and it's just this insane story in the scriptures where they're like, we're hearing about demons being cast out by the name of Jesus. And so they like go out and they're like, we're going to be demon hunters. And they're like, hey, we cast you out to these demons by the, Paul, uh, by the Jesus that Paul preaches. And then this is amazing thing. The demons respond back to them and they're like, Paul, I know. And Jesus, I for sure know, but who are you? And they're like, jump on these seven sons of the high priest, Eva, and beat them up, strip them naked, and send them running. Like, that's what happens when we go demon hunting. We are not to fight demons. We are to stand on the finished work and the power of the name of Jesus. James 2.19 tells us, you believe that God is one, you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. It's the, de- the demons shudder at the name of Jesus. And so we, let me be very clear about this, we are, we are the saved and not the Savior. We are dead in sin, but it is Christ who makes us alive. This is the gospel. We were bound captives, but it is Christ who sets us free. Being again now in, in further detail on verse 14. How does Jesus set us free? This is Christus Victor. He says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He canceled it. This he set aside. He removed it. By doing what? Nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities as Satan and demons. He disarms them and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What he's talking about here, when he says this term, record of debt, he's using the phrase for legal document. It's literally translated handwriting. And this is a Greek term that can be used in two ways uh, predominantly. The first one is this. It's, uh, this would be like the sheet of paper you would read off in the court of law against a prisoner who is being um, sentenced. This was charges against a prisoner. 
The second way this term is used is it is the ledger or the itemized list financially demonstrating someone's bankruptcy. And this is the legal demands. What he means by this is you have this list, and it is setting forth that you are a prisoner to Satan because of your sin. You are enslaved. And the other side of this is he's saying that you are morally bankrupt before God. But here is the good news, that Jesus, God, takes this actual list and he places it on Jesus on the cross, so to speak. And thereby, when Jesus died on the cross, he nailed not only our Savior, but he is our Savior because he also nailed those legal demands on the cross in Jesus. This is Christus Victor. So he's not just like, Jesus isn't just showing up and like a UFC fighter pummeling Satan or whatever, right? Like that's an awesome illustration and a really cute thing to say. But like the picture here is that actually it's the great paradox of the cross that defeats Satan. It's not just that he beat him up. It's this great paradox where it was Jesus who was both naked and nailed physically to the cross, but because he was there naked and nailed for our sin, the result that it was actually Satan who was tied up and humiliated. That is the good news of the gospel. Because at the cross, why is Satan humiliated? Why are demons defeated? Because he eliminated our debt in sin. This is the good news, and this is what should radically change our lives. Why does that work? Why is nailing this legal document something that, like, removes Satan? Well, here's the deal. What is Satan's whole MO? To tempt, deceive, and ultimately get you to sin, and then do what? To accuse you. But you cannot effectively accuse someone who is no longer guilty. This is the good news of Jesus. This is the good news of Jesus, that Satan... He can't take us captive anymore. Yes, he can accuse you. And yes, we're in the spiritual warfare where he is accusing the brothers, the Christians, day and night, as we read in Revelation 12, right? That he is accusing and so he's saying like, how, does, how is he defeated if he's still accusing me? He cannot effectively accuse you because you say, that's not who I am anymore. <laughs> Satan, you're exactly right. Yeah, I did do that. Yes, I did. And I do that. I still struggle with that. Yeah, you're right. I I. I have sinned. I am a thief. I am a liar. I am a pervert. I am broken. I am, yes, I, I sometimes mess up. I'm still struggling today, but here's the deal. I do those things, but that's not who I am in Jesus. And guess what? It's Jesus who's sanctifying, cleansing, and changing me. We would say it this way, that Jesus bound the strong man. If you look in the Gospels, uh, you may have glossed over this, but Jesus is accused of casting out demons by the power of demons. Have you, have you seen this in the Gospels? And if, if you haven't, what Jesus does is he says that makes no logical sense. And he responds to them, and he says, look, de demons can't cast out demons. I can't cast them out by the power of Satan, because in order to plunder the strong man's house, he says you have to first bind the strong man. And what he's talking about there is a later allusion to Revelation 20 where Jesus actually binds Satan up, and he does it through the gospel. Here, Paul talks about this open shame he is putting that Jesus put, that God put these, um, these enemies of our souls, too. You, you notice that. He says, open shame, triumphing over them. Paul had in mind this uh, Roman general procession. When a Roman general would defeat an opposing army, he would then bind up the enemies of uh, that empire who sought your life 
And they would tie them up, and then they would walk through the town after they were defeated. And they would take these chained prisoners of war, and all of the people would cheer at the victory. And all of the people would jeer at the enemy who would have had their life but is now bound in chains. Listen, this is the good news of the gospel. And I don't know if you remember that, um, you guys remember that like claymation, uh, like uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Like, yeah? Okay, Christmas fans, unite, what's up? And who is it? It's Cornelius, right? Cornelius or whatever. And he, 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 it's the abominable snowman, and that's their enemy. And what does he do? He, like, uses his little pick and, like, knocks out the snowman, and then he does what? He defangs him. He takes out his teeth, and then they call him what? The humble bumble, right? He's the humble bumble, and he's like, and he can't do anything anymore. Now he's still huge. He still comes across as a threat, but he doesn't have teeth. Look at me. Satan no longer has teeth in your life. Addiction no longer has teeth in your life. Yeah, you still struggle with that. There's always going to be temptation, but you defeat that by declaring and believing the gospel truth over your life. This is not radical Christianity. This is basic gospel 101. How you actually defeat sin every single day is renewing your mind with this truth of the gospel. You want to be sanctified? You want to see your family grow in Christ? You want to defeat that sin? You want to uh, be healed of those names that you were called as a kid that still feel like they have weight on you, still affect your decisions? I mean, you're 30 years old, you're 40 years old, and you're still thinking about this? Man, that's not shame on you. That is, we need to stand against those lies with the gospel of Jesus. No matter what's been done to you, you can proclaim this truth in your life. He, he leads them in open shame and triumphs over them. That's why in 13 and 14 of the previous chapter, it says Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Man, this laces our Christmas theology, right? You, you listen to all these like Christmas hymns. I don't know what it is. I'm in like a Christmassy mood today. And so we're talking about this. Look, what does it say? God rest ye merry gentlemen. Let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas day. To what? To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. That is good news. He says, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel, defeated Satan's power. It says, chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Christmas is sung this way because Ultimately, this idea of Christus Victor was on the minds and hearts of the writer because this theology is what changes our life. It sets you free from oppression. And let me tell you how this works today. Let me, let me just demonstrate for us how this works. How do you apply Colossians 13 and 14 to your life? Well, let me ask you this question. Um, have you seen somebody ever like drive around in their car with like a mask on? <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Like, I am zero making fun of you if you you were wearing masks and you're staying safe. I love you. Absolutely. Protect the vulnerable. Protect yourself. But, like, when you're alone in the car, like, why, bro? Like, I just, I don't understand this. And, like, no offense, maybe you've got to, and I I totally understand. But here's the truth. Like, when I see that, at first I was like, this feels communist to me. (laughs) Like, you're looking at, like, somebody literally like, I'm just going to wear this. And But anyway, so I'm looking at this. Do I strike you as a person that would wear a mask in the car? 
That is not my personality. I am a freedom-loving American, all right? More likely to fly in on a bald eagle than wear a mask in the car, all right? If it's you, I love you. I love you. Wear your mask, but I'm not going to do it. That's just not who I am. This is my identity, right? And so I'm, I'm driving around, but then, uh, like, I was working in my house, you know, late Friday, and I had to get all this, like, popcorn ceiling, which I guess has asbestos, and you're not supposed to breathe that stuff. You guys know what I'm talking about? And so I'm like, well, it's in my car. Maybe I should, like, wear a mask. But then I realized I'm going to look like a commie. Like, that's what's going down right here. People are going to judge me. And I'm like, I'm literally, like, driving around like this. Like, don't look. And I'm, like, watching after folks that I know, just thinking I'm going to get judged or whatever. Like, so I'm driving around like this, and I kid you not, I get to this neighborhood where you have to, like, drive slow, and there's kids, and these two little boys, little fifth-grade boys, on scooters, you can't make this stuff up, like a couple of little demons, roll up to my open window and are like, take off your mask, dude! Take off your mask, you communist! I'm like, what in the heck? Like, what's wrong with you kids? Where are your parents? Shame on you, you sinners. And so I'm, like, ducking, and I'm, like, they're yelling, at, now they're following me. <laughs> chasing me down. I'm like, and I start to ask myself internally, like, am I a communist? Like, am I, am I really scared of them? Like, am I, like, what's going on here? And, and so I just experienced this, and then I remind myself, this is not the truth of who I am, all right? This is not the truth of who I am. That is not my identity, amen? This is, the tr- this is how it works with the gospel of Jesus. We say Satan wants to come to you, and he says, man, this is who you are. This is who you're always going to be. You ever sin? You ever sin, and you're gonna, you're, you, or you start, you're tempted, and you start down that road, and you find yourself like, man, I've already gone this far. I, I may as well go all the way. You ever experienced that? Start to get a little upset, so you're just going to let him have it. Or you, you, you feel tempted, and so you're like, man, I was already tempted. I already clicked on this one thing, so now I'm going to, I might as well just keep going. You ever found yourself an enemy saying, yeah, just, just go all the way? Regardless of the lies or the accusation and the temptations the enemy can throw at you, you operate on a whole new reality of the gospel. It's preaching to ourselves. And if you're not a Christian, then you are still right now positionally a slave to sin. You are right now under the domain of darkness and you need to be set free today through faith in our Savior Jesus. He is right now beckoning you in the unseen realm saying, come, come be saved. Come walk into the light. He says, I know you and I have already died for you. There's nothing you could do to earn this. Just believe, just put faith, surrender to me as king. Jesus is now exalted in the heavens and he is beckoning you by name. Believe in Jesus. Let this gospel watch over you. We need to worship Jesus and proclaim and trust in Jesus. Amen. He is our victor. He is our great conqueror. And as we enter now into a time of worship, I want you to picture that it is World War II. And the battle of Normandy was just fought. You guys remember this from high school, right? And the enemy is officially defeated. Hitler is a vanquished foe. It is fact. It is done. It's over. And now the news begins to ring out from every radio station across Europe. And all over the world, they're saying the allies have been victorious. The enemy is defeated. The war is over. And that would be good news, right? That is good news. And you are living in a concentration camp. And you are there as a prisoner. 
And right now, factually, you are set free. The truth is that good news has not yet reached your prison. And so you are functioning as a prisoner of war. You are functioning in a slavery that is no longer true of you. And today, I want to offer you the good news of Jesus, because so many of us are operating like that. We are acting as slaves when we have been set free, that you would cling to these precious promises in, second, in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, and say, man, if I'm dealing with addiction, that is not who I am. I'm set free in Christ, and I need to walk in that freedom. I am no longer a slave to religion. I am set free in Christ. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I just ask over your precious church right now. I want to ask that these powerful truths that you are conqueror would bleed into every realm of our lives as a church, as your people, that we would be sanctified by this reality, that we would proclaim this reality over every dimension of our lives, that we would proclaim that Christ is conquered through his cross and through his resurrection over every member of our family, God, over our children, God, over our legacies, God, over our city, God, over that lost family member, over that lost person we interact with every day, that Christ is conquered and they must be set free, and that your city would be transformed here in Gresham as it is in heaven, as we recognize that Jesus is on the throne and his precious grace, may it ring out all through this city. And all God's people said, amen.